Welcome to the Veterans of Peace Radio Hour on Radio Free Nashville, 107.1 and 103.7, and streaming live at RadioFreeNashville.org. Because we have to understand that Cuba's medical internationalism is not seen as under the paradigms of like modern aid uh, par uh, paradigm, which actually is, is very disingenuous and is often not really about helping nations, but about locking them into sort of long-term debt and so on. But Cuba's approach to medical internationalism is linked to its um, commitment to social justice and economic equality globally. That was Dr. Helen Yaffe, and today we will talk about Cuba. But first, my name is Jim Wolgamuth, and I'm here with fellow Vietnam veteran Harvey Bennett. We're members of Veterans for Peace, the Hector Black chapter. Veterans for Peace is an international organization of military veterans and allies whose collective efforts are to build a culture of peace, humanity, equality, and justice. Just go to veteransforpeace.org. This show is on stations across the country thanks to the Pacifica Radio Network. You can get a copy of the show by just going to SoundCloud or Anchor Podcast, searching Veterans for Peace, the Hector Black chapter. You can also easily find us through your podcast app on your phone. Just search Veterans for Peace. The Veterans for Peace Radio Hour and Radio Free Nashville are supported in part by the Green Party of Tennessee, bringing some common sense into the bipolar world of American politics. Go to greenpartyoftennessee.org. Now, my co-host Harvey Bennett has been to Cuba as part of a Veterans for Peace delegation some seven years ago. And so as we are disappointed in Biden's foot dragging on reestablishing the Obama's open door policy with Cuba, we're going to talk about just the work that they are doing to help and care for the least of these throughout the world. And that includes here in the United States. So here's our conversation. Latest COVID-19 update, 107,000 confirmed cases, 101, 101,000 recuperated, 644 deaths. Yeah. So they're doing a whole lot better than um, New York <laughs> or uh, yeah, their, Tennessee. Their fatality rate is about a little over one half of 1%. Mortality right here is closer to 2%. And their total fatalities for 11 million people, what was it, 620? 644. Okay. I mean, U.S. fatality rate for three, 325 million is what, 600,000 so far, or is it? It's close to 600,000. Yeah. It, 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 it may I, have. I did, I did the back of the envelope stuff last night on that. Roughly 36 times, the U.S. has 36 times the fatality rate of Cuba per, you know, per 100,000. 36 times. That's... We might be able to learn a little something from them. Oh, wait a second, Harvey. They're, <laughs> you know, they're socialists. Um, we can't learn anything. In fact, we even have to take their good ideas and vilify them. So anyway, uh, you know, what kind of got us into doing this show is we're also frustrated with Biden waiting. You know, he's done all these executive actions on, uh, you know, stuff that's good, whatever, but nothing hadn't done anything for Cuba no. to, to undo these horrendous things that, not to mention what 
we've been doing for 60 years with the blockade and everything else, but Trump just going completely crazy with it, you know, we're limiting remittances for families, uh, <clears throat> placing Cuba on the uh, state sponsor of terrorism list with no basis for that whatsoever. Mm -hmm. uh, and then <clears throat> labeling the Cuban medical brigades, which are being nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize uh, as human trafficking because the countries that pay Cuba for the service, Cuba doesn't give all that money to the doctors that go there. They reinvested in, in their uh, healthcare system. So that's right. Uh, I got a clip from we're pulling our hair out. Yeah, Jim McGovern is a representative who is frustrated and he is from I think Massachusetts. Yeah, Democrat from Massachusetts. And he, he's been leading the charge in Congress to try to get Biden to move on Cuba. Yeah, let's listen to a little bit of what he said. Well, thank you, Parky, and thank you, Marcy, and thank you, Medea, and everybody on the call. And I'm, I'm really happy to be here to talk about an issue that I care deeply about, and that is uh, the normalization of relations between the United States and Cuba. You know, I've been traveling to Cuba for decades. Um, I first visited Cuba when I was in college in the late 1970s. And I've been to Cuba during good times, and I've been to Cuba during bad times through economic boom and through economic hardship. And um, I've been in Cuba, uh, you know, when cab drivers uh, were reluctant to tell you what was on their mind. And I've been to Cuba now when cab drivers tell you everything that's on their mind uh, about uh, what they want for the future. Um, I've met with uh, President Fidel Castro. I've met with President Raul Castro. I've met with President uh, Miguel Diaz-Canal. And so uh, I feel I'm, a, I'm, on, I'm on pretty solid ground uh, when I say that never had I seen so much activity, so much optimism and excitement, so much creativity and innovation, and so much space open up for the Cuban people than during the last two years when President Obama and Raul Castro normalized relations and restored sanity and some humanity and how we dealt with one another. Uh, many of you can take credit uh, for that sweeping change. Um, you invested years, uh, uh, you know, tr here at home, kind of plowing the ground so that President Obama felt compelled to finally uh, do what we wanted to do a long time earlier. Uh, and there are many people who took advantage of those changes, building stronger partnerships, carrying out joint research uh, and studies, uh, you know, understanding that Cuba has this incredible medical research and biotechnology uh, industry. Uh, people reached out to su support small businesses and collaborate with artists, uh, strengthening uh, local farmers and encouraging the U.S. private sector and nonprofits and ordinary Americans to explore opportunities and the beauty uh, of Cuba and the Cuban people. Uh, there, was, there was so much to learn and there was so much to do the possibilities seemed endless. Uh, we thought we turned the page and we were writing a new chapter uh, about where the future would take both our countries. Then we found out uh, we were wrong and exactly how wrong we were, uh, that it could all be undone, uh, that the U.S. could go backwards decades in time, back to a failed Cold War ideology that we thought we had left behind forever. 
and now um, scarcely one month into a new presidential administration, we have another chance. We have to, um, and I emphasize this, uh, we, because this isn't just about, you know, the United States, it's about Cuba and the Cuban people, um, and they must also be willing to seize this opportunity uh, and take a, uh, take, this, uh, take a chance to create a better future for both our countries. Not to move slowly, uh, bit by incremental bit, uh, but to stand up our embassy and consular services in Havana right now. Uh, to reverse Trump's executive orders right now, to, to get travel, financial services, remittances, agriculture, education, scientific and cultural exchanges, and commercial and technology services up and going again right now, and to get Cuba off the damn terrorist list again, and to do it right now. Uh, I urge him to put us back on a path that moves us forward uh, to the future, not one that leads to the darkest corners of our past. Uh, to act with passion and purpose so we can finally embrace a new chapter in U.S.-Cuban relations. Now, there's, Biden can do a lot right now. And to be honest with you, I've been pushing and pushing, and I'm a little bit frustrated that we haven't already done what I think is so simple to do, uh, and that is to go back to the policies we had during the last uh, year of the Obama administration. Uh, so we're gonna, so priority one is we, we got to get the administration to act. I mean, there, there is stuff they can do without Congress, and, and they ought to do it right now. So that was Jim McGovern from Massachusetts, a Democrat. And what he clarified for me is by saying, oh, Biden can do some things, but the Congress still has to get in there and undo the legislation that was put in place by Trump. And so, but still, still, we can't wait. He, 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 he points out that there's two years. Yeah. Two-year window. Yeah. You can't pussyfoot around right now. You've got to do something to um, open up the doors and the blockade to Cuba because they're doing great stuff. Well, and it's hurting us now, in, in addition to the Cuban people. Now, how's it hurting us? You've been to Cuba. You've yeah, been to... yeah. So you're our expert well, on Cuba. Well, I'm not an expert, but I mean, you look at what they're doing with COVID. Surely there's a lot to learn from them because they're having so much more success than we are. They have uh, treatment modalities they're using for patients that we really have no information about because we can't, can't you know, our, our scientific communities can't really uh, communicate with each other. Uh, they've got five vaccines in progress. They've got two that are in phase three trials. So, yeah. uh, and we're gonna talk about that later, but they, uh, they have assured, of course, because of the horrendous blockade, which has become more and more severe under Trump, they're having problems uh, rolling out the vaccine, getting people vaccinated because they're short of syringes of all things. So there is a uh, movement to provide syringes and we're gonna tell you how to do that. They can contribute to the Syringes to Cuba campaign. Go to bit.ly, that's B-I-T dot L-Y slash syringes for Cuba, that's number four. Cuba, no spaces. 
syringes for Cuba. And it has a way to donate funds. Uh, and this is going to be uh, all run through Canada somewhere <clears throat> to get syringes for the Cuban vaccinations. Uh, <clears throat> there's the Saving Lives campaign. And that's at savinglives.us dash cuba normalization.org. Some of the links that people can use to uh, try to address the terrible consequences of uh, Trump administration and not to mention the previous administrations. <clears throat> um, you know, this. April also was the 60th anniversary of the Bay of Pigs invasion, <clears throat> as well as the 60th anniversary of the uh, literacy campaign, which <clears throat> we learned a great deal about when we went to Cuba in 2013 <clears throat> uh, for the Veterans Peace uh, contingent trip. I think there were like 14 or 15 of us who went down there with spouses or <clears throat> And uh, we had a wonderful trip down there. Jim Ryerson uh, organized it for us. <clears throat> we, uh, we got to meet Cuban veterans. We got to uh, learn about uh, <clears throat> the incredible literacy campaign they've had. <clears throat> we learned about their <clears throat> uh, helping Angola fight off an invasion from South Africa. Uh, when Angola was trying to uh, <clears throat> liberate itself from, or shortly after they uh, <clears throat> were liberated by from Portuguese occupation, then there was a civil war, and South Africa was supporting <clears throat> the right wing uh, side of it, so as was the U.S. <clears throat> and uh, how the Cubans uh, went to Angola to to answer the call. They they asked for help and. Uh, at that time, uh, Fidel Castro said, uh, they're asking for our help. And Africans built Cuba. So we, right. we cannot say no. And, and they sent, you know, troops to Cuba who fought and died in this war and helped them defeat the apartheid army of South Africa, which nobody thought they could do, but they did it. <clears throat> and, uh, when they left, they just left uh, health clinics and uh, you know social infrastructure uh, plans. They didn't establish military bases in Angola or, or uh, you know try to uh, get mining contracts and all that stuff. They 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 just left once they they uh, had defeated South Africa. And uh, you know, as a result of that, when Nelson Mandela was freed from pr prison after 27 years, uh, the first place he went outside the continent of Africa was Cuba to personally thank Fidel Castro for saving their, <clears throat> the uh, South, for defeating this apartheid regime of South Africa. That was the beginning of the end for, for the uh, apartheid regime. So we learned all these things that I never knew before, for sure. I mean, and you talked about the literacy campaign. Uh, do you, how many people do you think know about the literacy campaign? <laughs> Very few. <There, clears throat> what we learned about it was that 
an American woman whose grandmother was Cuban and had left the country and she knew her growing up. She heard all these horror stories about Cuba. <clears throat> she um, decided to go, her name was Kathleen Murphy. <clears throat> she decided to go down there and see what she could find out. And she just said, what I learned are, was that there are two sides to the story and I was only hearing one side. So. <laughs> and she made this documentary when she heard about the literacy campaign, she made a wonderful documentary <clears throat> called uh, Maestra, a maestra, which means teacher. Mm -hmm. Maestras voluntarios. There were, <clears throat> you know, uh, hundreds of thousands of people volunteered to go into the countryside and the mountains and teach these people who had really no, not even any schools up there, and uh, they're living in primitive conditions, and they, none of them could read or write. And a lot of these were teenagers. Uh, I think the youngest volunteer they had was like eight or seven years, something like that. Yeah. And she, she taught some man, you know, who was uh, in his 50s how to read and got him to, you know, first grade reading level. So, and the UN certified after it was over. And this is what Fidel Castro had, had proclaimed at the UN, but they were going to eliminate illiteracy. Everyone just laughed about it. <clears throat> and they, they actually certified that Cuba was uh, completely free of illiteracy after that campaign. Yeah, I... And the, the powerful part of the film, in addition to that, was her, her interviews with these, you know, middle-aged to older adults who were kids when they did this talking about how that experience changed their lives. Absolutely. And that's, uh, and the documentary is called Maestro? Maestra, La Maestra, M-A-E-S-T-R-A, -E means teacher. So look that up. And yeah. so, but we, we wanted to talk about the two things. First of all, what COVID, COVID what Cuba is doing with COVID and what, um, uh, what Biden and the administration are not doing. So yeah. we heard from Jim McGovern already, who is pushing the legislation, and we still need to push Biden to do whatever he can. I mean, yeah. I'm sure he has executive power to at least open up, open up Cuba to to air travel. Well, he could get them taken off the state sponsors of terrorist, which is a da so damaging yeah. for Cuba. It, it prevents other countries from doing anything, any kind of financial transactions. Um, same thing with the, uh, you know, classifying the Cuban medical brigades as human trafficking. The U.S. is, is imposing sanctions on any country that accepts a medical brigade from Cuba to help them with their whatever. I mean, you know, they were the biggest medical presence, uh, foreign medical presence during the Ebola crisis mm -hmm. in Africa. <clears throat> and, the, and the reason they're so effective is that's what they're trained to do. They're yeah. trained to come into uh, public health crises and, and pandemics. <clears throat> you know, they were the first group to go uh, and assist Italy when Italy was the epicenter, as everyone remembers, Northern Italy, Lombardy, 
you know, it was just totally out of control. And, you know, the Europeans were staying as far away from it as they could. A huge content, Cuba sent a huge contingent of specialist doctors there to, <clears throat> to assist. And, uh, and the Italians and people in Lombardy just said, this is wonderful. Where are the Europeans? Why is it right. Cuba who's here helping us? You know, this tiny, you know, nation, you know, the struggling under economic blockade for more than half a century, and they're sending all these people to try to help us, and they're and they're good at it. That's the thing. It's not just a show. Sure, sure. Now you had some. You you sent me some clips. And you wanted to listen? Yeah, there was a wonderful uh, webinar um, that actually my friend Claire, who was on the Vet Veterans for Peace <clears throat> uh, trip with us in 2015, she's been sending me great stuff on Cuba for a long time. But this was a recent one from April. <clears throat> it was uh, from the organization and it's called the Bay, yeah, Bay, the Bay Area Savings Lives, Saving Lives Coalition or whatever. Anyway, they did a wonderful job bringing all these people together to talk about how Cuba, it's called Cuba Confronting COVID-19, Cuba's approach to, uh, mm -hmm. to uh, providing health care for all. That's Cuba's one of Cuba's, you know, most, that's probably their number one priority. All um, right. Well, the first lady you, you, um, the first clip was from a Deborah Berger, who's president. And she's an, you know, she's an American who's president of the National Nurses Union here in the U.S. And oh. she went to Cuba and learned about their healthcare system. And uh, <clears throat> so she, uh, also, of course, has been experiencing the pandemic, losing uh, fellow uh, nurses for you know totally avoidable reasons like lack of protective personal protective equipment, etc. <clears throat> um, all the obstacles that the profit-based healthcare system places in, <clears throat> in the response to COVID here. So she's she's powerful. All right, well, very let's powerful listen. statement of that. Let's hear what she says. Um, my name is Deborah Berger, and I am one of the presidents of National Nurses United. And our union is proud to co-sponsor this timely discussion of the practice of science, public health, and solidarity in Cuba. In 2018, leaders of our union visited Cuba to learn about Cuba's universal healthcare system. Despite the economic constraints caused by nearly six decades of the US embargo, the Cuban government has prioritized healthcare and a system that is deeply committed to ensuring that all people have access to the care they need. Um, Ambassador Torres Rivera uh, explained in detail, quite a bit of detail, um, how people access healthcare in that system. And uh, in the United States, however, 
Our market-driven system of private insurance creates tremendous barriers and leads to tens of thousands of unnecessary deaths every single year. As nurses who devote ourselves to advocating for the health and well-being and dignity of all people, you can imagine the envy we felt when we visited Cuba's neighborhood clinics and learned that the doctors and nurses proactively show up at patients' home when they miss their appointment or overdue for their checkups. They know them by name, they're personal people to them. They even assigned a doctor and a nurse team to ensure that the health of Cuba's visitors at the large hotels were taken care of. And a couple of our staff members even um, had hotel room visits by doctors and nurses when they um, became ill there. Uh, we are in awe of Cuba's investment in improving social determinants of health. Social factors that cause poor health in our country are mitigated in Cuba by guaranteed free education and by Cuba's commitment to making sure that all people are honored and fed and housed. It was truly amazing when we uh, were there. We saw no one sleeping in the streets, no one desperate for food, no one begging for handouts because they had the resources they needed. We were amazed when we visited Cuba's Center for Genetic Engineering and Biotechnology, which has achieved stunning achievements and advances in curative treatments that could run circles around US therapies, which now include development of five promising COVID vaccines, all despite restraints on materials and equipment in, in, uh, in, imposed on Cuba by the US embargo. As a diabetes case manager at one point in my career, I saw at these um, facilities that they had developed treatments for diabetic ulcer wounds that prevented amputations. And it broke my heart that our uh, citizens in the US wouldn't be able to have access to those treatments. It's truly cruel and inhumane. As uh, you've heard, I've been a nurse for over 45 years. And I can honestly say that this past year dealing with outright negligence and lack of preparedness of the US healthcare system has been one of the most challenging and heartbreaking in my years of life as a nurse. You know, Harvey, when I'm listening to that and she's describing her the Cuba's relationships to its patients, I couldn't help but think of the care that I get when I go to the VA. So we know it can be done. We know it can be done. Yeah. It can be done. Now the, the, the let's see, the next clip you had, you wanted me to share or wanted me to look up is from Helen Yaffe. Oh yes, she's wonderful. And 
And I would like to put my cards on the table and say, I'm not a medic or a medical scientist. I'm a um, economic historian and political economist. So that's the perspective uh, with which I have studied Cuba's biotech sector. So I'll start by saying something about that. It is um, quite extraordinary and globally exceptional. It is also the Cuba's biotech development was the first time in Cuban economic history that it's been in the leadership of an emerging industrial sector. And this was very much, well, first we have to say a product or made possible because of Cuba's very early and very significant committed investments in education and in healthcare in general, but also the vision of the of Fidel Castro and the other um, revolutionary leadership of the importance of developing science and technology to put at the service of social development. So the biotech sector emerged in Cuba really from the early 1980s before it was really developing even in Britain and Europe. So very early on, just five years after the first biotech firm was established globally which was established by a, a, a sort of team of a biochemist and a venture capitalist. And that really set the uh, characteristic for the biotech sector globally. It was about high stakes investment, profit seeking, private interest. And that has um, really characterized certainly in the um, advanced capitalist countries, the nature of biotechnology. And the Cuban system on the other hand, was established with 100% state investment, 100% state owned. Uh, it has um, over 50 institutions, research and development institutions in the Western Havana Scientific Pole, which collaborate. They meet and discuss how they can share and exchange resources rather than competition in the pursuit of profit. And really for a country that has such scarce resources, that is, blockaded, that has um, had access to modern technologies, even to, to scientific journals denied through the US blockade, um, that you know, faces incredible difficulty getting the, the reagents that it needs for its drugs, getting finances, because Cuba is prohibited from you know, international loans. So the first achievement is that Cuba has a biotech sector. Secondly, I would use up the rest of this meeting if I were going to go through and say some of the um, big achievements. But you have the world's first meningitis B vaccine. I'm going to really briefly summarize a few of them. In 1988, introduced to the public healthcare system 30 years before Britain. Uh, you have the world, uh, first in the world to eliminate mother to child HIV transmission. You have the first synthetic antigen vaccine. You have uh, hip B, you have the hip report P for uh, diabetic foot ulcers, which reduces the need for amputations by 72%. So you mentioned this, Deborah. Well, someone's done the calculation. It's in my book. Um, that would reduce by 52,000, something like that, the number of people in the US who every year have to uh, suffer from amputations. So, you know, Cuba is really astonishing. Uh, the Global South knows this before the COVID-19 pandemic, Cuba was exporting its biotech products to nearly 50 countries. They were being used in childhood immunization campaigns in Latin America. 
and so on. So if in the context that you've mentioned five vaccines, it is incredible. There are only 23 globally that are at phase three um, level of, of clinical trials and two of them are Cuban with three more following in, in close pursuit and, and lots of other adaptations that they have. But they also have drugs that have proven really useful. And I'd like to mention particularly just Vinza, which is, uh, seems to be part of the reason that the mortality rate of those infected in Cuba is so low. It's a drug that has been developed, which reduces the inflammatory reaction when of uh, COVID-19 patients in severe conditions. And um, the, the whole world really needs not just the United States, but you know, globally, we need to be studying what Cuba's doing and, and helping Cuba because Cuba has so many ways in which it can help the rest of us. Can you talk a little bit about the significance of the medical internationalism in general and the role it's, um, it's playing during this pandemic? Okay, it's a great question. Um, yeah, so um, just to sort of put it out there, uh, so we get an idea of the scope that we're talking about with medical internationalism from Cuba. Before the pandemic, 400,000 Cubans, Cuban medical professionals, had worked in, um, I think it was 164 countries over six decades. So that is an, an astonishing uh, accomplishment for a small Caribbean island of uh, 11 million people, which found itself at the outset of the Cuban revolution with a little over 3000 um, trained physicians uh, after half of them left in the first um, months and years. So Cuban medical internationalism first started in 1960. So despite, you know, this was, this was not a question that Cuba could afford surplus medics, it couldn't by any means. And yet there was a terrible earthquake in Chile and they sent a team out there, emergency assistance. But then they also were assisting the Algerian struggle for national liberation. And um, in, as part of that, they brought some of the, uh, some, some orphaned children and some of the soldiers back to Cuba to give treatment. And so this first developed, um, I've, I think this is important to point out because we have to understand that Cuba's medical internationalism is not, seen as under the paradigms of like modern aid uh, par uh, paradigm which actually is is very disingenuous and is often not really about helping nations but about locking them into sort of long-term debt and so on but Cuba's approach to medical internationalism is linked to its um, commitment to social justice and economic equality globally and it sees the struggle for national independence against colonialism and imperialism as part of the same struggle against the global conditions which lead to poor health, poverty, and you know this terrible scenario where you have uh, every few minutes children dying of malnutrition and, and diarrhea completely unnecessary. Then you have the assistance that Cuba has given for um, helping to set up public healthcare systems, that first started after Algeria became independent in 1963 and they sent a team there. Um, but we've seen that more recently and in a, in a very extended, you know, large scale in Venezuela, where the Cubans have been there helping to set up the missions 
um, to, to establish public healthcare system then sustained over 20,000 medical professionals in Venezuela now for nearly two decades. Then there is the um, treatment of foreign patients in Cuba. So, um, you know, recently we had the anniversary of the Chernobyl nuclear disaster in Eastern Europe, but hardly anyone mentioned the assistance that was given to the victims of that, particularly children, um, up by the incredible program, Children of Chernobyl program set up in Cuba. 1989, it started just on the eve of Cuba's severe economic crisis, which happened um, just uh, after the collapse of the Soviet bloc. Cuba's GDP plummeted by a third. They were struggling to feed themselves and yet they maintained this program. So that within 21 years, 26,000 uh, people from Ukraine, Russia, Belarus had benefited from Cuban medical assistance on the island and the vast majority of those were children. Um, and then there has been uh, also training students from overseas. So now, and I, I hope we're going to hear from Christine, who is a graduate of the Latin American School of Medicine. Literally tens of thousands of young people from around the world have had the opportunity to study medicine. And most of them come from the backgrounds which would, would make them um, which would block their entry into those into medical profession in most of the world where medicine is commodified, where it is a, um, you know, it, it is distributed on the basis of a market. So incredible story of Cuban medical internationalism. Now she really does a great job of kind of sketching it all. <clears throat> and the notion that, you know, the reason their biotech has left everybody else in the dust is they've got all these different centers who come together and share everything they're learning. And then the venture capitalist model, whatever you've found out is wrapped in you know, top secret. And even now we won't uh, you know, let go of patent protections for the vaccines we have. <clears throat> I mean, how many, how many are dying in India? And, yeah. and, and, you know, I hope, I hope Cuba can get their vaccine <clears throat> phase three and, uh, and over to India, because that's going to be India's only chance. You know that the Western world, the Americans and the capitalists are not going to release and Biden isn't going to force them to release it unless I'm surprised. And their argument is that you do that, then you lose the incentive people have to innovate and create vaccines. What's the incentive in Cuba? Saving lives, isn't that good enough? Exactly, <laughs> just saving lives. Where's the Hippocratic Oath when you need it? How now the next speaker you had was Dr. Rodriguez. Yeah, well, I think the COVID-19 has been a, a moment where solidarity and humanity and kindness has been shown uh, in many occasions. And one example, for example, I want to start mentioning is that very uh, important institution has been sharing uh, work or designs to help, for example, when the COVID-19 started uh, growing, uh, growing the, the pandemic, became a pandemic, one of the problems was the availability of ventilators. 
And then the system were collapsing because there were too many people in, in ICU and ventilators were not enough. And then uh, organizations like, or institutions like the MIT in Massachusetts or the UCL, the University College London, they developed their own designs and they published the design on the web, in the website and offer for free, there was an open design that was available for the whole community. So that is a way where cooperation uh, was shown. And then using that, uh, that uh, kindness or making you know benefit taking the benefit of that kindness Cuba started to develop their own ventilators using the designs from UCL and also the design offered by the Massachusetts Institute of Technology so going a little further on that then they established a collaboration between UCL and the Cuban Neuroscience Center that is leading the development of CPAPs, that is a type of ventilator that is non-invasive, as, as the nurses that are here all know what they're talking about, this not invasive uh, ventilation using positive pressure. And they established that collaboration to go further in the, in the, in the project for the developing, the, 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 the proof, the different proof, improving the design in the Cuban conditions and, and so on. Later on, there has been money that has been uh, offered by different uh, uh, associations. And right now, for example, there is also a joint project between Oxford University and also, for example, the Cuban Neuroscience Center for doing joint research in the COVID-19 uh, complications, uh, neurological complications that the patient could have a sickness after they are recovered. For the acute uh, for, for the acute disease. So those are examples of, of collaboration during COVID pandemic. So in the case of the US, collaboration in the medical field and in the scientific field, they have suffered because of the, the US uh, embargo from the 60s. So, but that doesn't mean that the, the, the cooperation doesn't exist. The cooperation exists, and actually the development of interferon. Uh, that today is a, a, a recombinant variant of interferon that what we have in Cuba. So they started learning about interferon, where they were and production of interferon, going to the United States and exchanging with colleagues that at that moment, they were le leading, uh, leading the field. So, uh, and like that, so, but still always there has been visits from scientists exchanging an information, training with the difficulties of the blockade, but, but they have been established. During the COVID-19, however, and despite all the measures that the, the Trump administration has put in place on Cuba, they have tightened the blockade and the difficulties in the country. Uh, in December uh, 2019, uh, was held the first joint meeting between leaders of the public health, uh, Cuban public health, doctors and nurses with the University of Minnesota. And the second one will be at the, at the end of April. That, that is an example how a steel cooperation act. And I think science and global health diplomacy is, is, is the key. Is one of the key to restore relations as, and to demonstrate that both countries could benefit from the end of the uh, US uh, blockade. Uh, um.
where, where's, where's the incentive? Where, where's the incentive? Where's the profit motive? All right. One more clip. Let's see. Well, that was uh, the, uh, the medical student who got her free medical education in Cuba. She's from Chicago. Okay. Knight. Dr. Knight graduated in 2019 from Cuba's remarkable Latin American School of Medicine, ELAM, where she spent the last six years living and studying medicine in La Habana. Uh, as Dr. Yafe mentioned, ELAM has graduated tens and thousands of physicians coming from these very um, vulnerable communities that have been underserved throughout Africa, Asia, the Americas, and the United States. Um, so these students like Dr. Knight uh, receive a full medical education scholarship thanks to the Cuban government. And in return upon graduation, they make the commitment to go back and work in the communities that are underserved and that have shortages of primary care doctors. In many cases, they return to their own home communities. And uh, those of you who are listening, um, the numerous nurses that are working in the United States, you know all too well that this pandemic is radically exasperating the deadly consequences of racial and socioeconomic disparities in the health and the healthcare in the United States, creating what they say is a crisis within a crisis, especially for people of color. Dr. Knight, you are currently a resident doctor in Chicago in the midst of a global pandemic. Tell us a little bit about the community you are serving and what elements of the Cuban medical education system has proven helpful in navigating um, our current health crisis? Welcome. Thank you so much. I want to say thank you to you all organizing. Um, and it really is an honor to be here with you all. Um, with everyone doing all the great work that they're doing. Um, I also always want to thank um, IFCO and everyone at Proyecto Elvam because, you know, we would most certainly not be here without them. Um, so, yes, I uh, have the honor to be a part of a community-based family medicine residency. Uh, we are uh, work in our hospital training out of St. Mary's Hospital, which is um, on the west side of Chicago. And then um, particularly in the Humboldt Park, Humboldt Park neighborhood. Um, and then we do our uh, clinic and continuity training out of a federally qualified health center called Prime Care. Um, so sadly, um, we are in some of, you know, the, the community that we work with um, are definitely at baseline very vulnerable communities and um, have been hit uh, some of the hardest hit communities in the city. Um, and uh, so I am honored and very grateful to be working with many um, like co-residents and um, many of the um, attendings and doctors and nurses who um, are, are definitely uh, putting a lot out there to work with everyone. And um, I think as uh, President Berger um, mentioned, definitely um, it's, it's not easy, but um, I'm very grateful to be here. Um, but yeah, I think so. I think definitely a lot of my interest goes into that that second question, which is definitely asking the question of you know what is it? What are the things that we got the opportunity to learn, um, and what that can do, um, especially in moments like this, both in Cuba and outside. And I think 
I definitely want to start, which I think many of us did, is emphasizing that when we're trained in Cuba and everyone who trains in Cuba, we are trained under the premise that healthcare is a human right. And I think that what that does, I think not only in our perspective of providing, um, but in the perspective of someone who enters into a, a system and engages with healthcare on the idea of healing. And so if you could only imagine, if you go in, if you are a part of a system that believes that healthcare is a human right, it already sets the premise of what you know, healing is and what's expected. And I think that that um, very much changes um, the potential of healing. But then on top of that, I think that it, it has built an infrastructure. It is a system that is very much aware that if, if healthcare is a human right, and it does believe in what many people mentioned, like these social determinants of health, it doesn't just address um, the issue of, you know, like the medicine you need and, and all these other things. It addresses food, it addresses housing, it addresses a whole infrastructure um, that, that then leads to this further a capacity to heal and to, and to not just um, it because it doesn't just it's not just the absence of sickness it's the presence of health right and so I think that um, that infrastructure and that choice to go that route is um, something that very much changes the the potential and capacity um, and I think um, on on top of that I think that that's part of like what has been so hard and, and difficult in our community especially in you know because we have the hospital experience but we have the outpatient clinic experience and so um part of the difficulty and part of what I was so grateful to have in Cuba and to learn from is that when people come into the clinic um you know they're they're not part of why this is such a crisis is not just because they're um maybe they have COVID or they have had COVID, it's, it's the, the, the enormous crisis that we're facing and they've lost their jobs, they've lost their, their sense of security of housing, they've lost their you know, security of, um, of, of food. And I think that that then snowballs into a, a further crisis that, that um, you know, affects mostly populations that were already previously vulnerable. And I think that this moment has really exposed um, just how vulnerable, um, you know, communities are within our country. Um, and then I also want to mention um, something that I know many doctors in um, uh, Chicago, especially Dr. Howard Ehrman and, and other, I'm sure doctors other places have been, you know, talking about a skill that we learned in Cuba, which is pesquisaje. Um, it's like screening and popular education. Um, it is built in, you know, Cuba's medical system is born of the idea of capacitating medical professionals to learn public health, to learn these tools. You know, I, we learned what is isolation, what is quarantine? These are concepts in public health. And um, sadly, you know, it, it took months before our infrastructure got, it was capable of doing things like contact tracing and, and um, doing door-to-door -door popular education, things like that. Um, even though, you know, we had docs here early on pushing for that and understandably so. Um, because the, they are built into the infrastructure within Cuba and we are trained how to do that within Cuba and um, they are skills that are essential at a time like this. So that was the perspective of Dr. Christine Knight, a resident in the United States, with regard to her perspective of the United States after medical school in Cuba. 
Republicans love to talk about the sanctity of life. Only if it's white. Until it's born. Exactly. <laughs> Until and the, the amazing thing about it is this whole blockade, all these sanctions that we throw at them, and all that does is just steal their determination to show yeah. that they don't need us. That they can overcome anything we throw at them. And, you know, and yet there's no willingness among the establishment, political establishment, Democrats or Republicans, mm -hmm. to say 60 years, accomplished nothing, maybe we should try something else. Because when the, when the uh, blockade was in, imposed, the, uh, basically the rationale for it as the U.S documents have shown uh, was to by by you know shutting down the Cuban economy they would create such misery and suffering among the population that the population would rise up and overthrow the new socialist regime and despite the blockade <laughs> despite everything everybody can read everybody can go to school Everybody is fed. Maybe they're not. Maybe they're not fat. <laughs> maybe maybe they're in shape, but everybody is fed. It, you know the the homeless issue is far better than ours. And so you know, so people are going to say, Harvey. Uh, so why don't you guys move to Cuba? <laughs> and the key is why why the richest why should the richest country in the world not do the same thing for its own people that's why we stay because the richest country in the world should be able to do for its people what the cuban regime authoritarian does for its people well it is able it's not willing it is able the people who have the power to make decisions aren't willing to do that. That's right. And Cuban policy is really uh, dictated entirely by domestic political considerations in the U.S. Yep. So, so you want to give us is if people want to get involved, they can contribute to the syringes to Cuba campaign. Go to bit.ly that's bit.ly slash syringes for cuba that's number four cuba no spaces syringes for cuba and it has a way to donate funds uh, and this is going to be uh, all run through canada somewhere uh, to get syringes for the cuban vaccinations uh, <clears throat> there's the saving lives campaign and that's at saving lives dot us dash cuba normalization dot org that's about the, the uh, embargo they have a the savings lives campaign has a toolkit that you can get to uh, get try to get your city state or union or other organization to uh, pass a resolution for medical cooperation with cuba there's also a uh, a group called ACERE, A-C-E-R-E, 
which advocates both uh, Congress and the Biden administration to make bold and progressive changes in U.S. policies toward Cuba. Uh, and that's at www.acera.org, A-C-E-R-E, Aceri. What, what song do you want to have? So, Harvey, this Guantanamera. is- Huh? Guantanamera? Yeah. Why not? Yeah. So here's the version by Campe Segundo. Guantanamera. Guajira Guantanamera. Guantanamera. Guajira Guantanamera. Yo soy un hombre sincero. De donde crece la palma Yo soy un hombre sincero De donde crece la palma Y antes de morir yo quiero Echar mis versos del alma Y antes de morir yo quiero Echar mis versos del alma Guantanamera, Guajira, Guantanamera. No me pongan en lo oscuro a morir como un traidor. No me pongan en lo oscuro a morir como un traidor. Yo soy bueno y como bueno. Moriré de cara al sol Yo soy bueno y como bueno Moriré de cara al sol Guantanamera Guajira Guantanamera Guantanamera Guajira Guantanamera Con los poderes de la tierra Quiero yo mi suerte echar Con los pobres de la tierra Quiero yo mi suerte echar El arroyo de la sierra Me complace más que el mar El arroyo de la sierra Me complace más que el mar Guantanamera, Guajira, Guantanamera. Tiene el leopardo un abrigo en su monte seco y pardo. Tiene el leopardo un abrigo en su monte seco y pardo. Yo tengo más que el leopardo. Porque tengo un 